This is Checking In, a podcast from Self Magazine. I'm Carolyn Hilstra, the Editor-in-Chief of Self, here to help you work through life's big and small questions about health and wellness. Today, we're hearing from a listener who's having trouble sleeping next to her partner. She has a common illness, sleep apnea, but that's not exactly what's keeping her up. It's actually the shame of wearing her CPAP machine, which treats her sleep apnea. That's what's stressing her out. I am June. I'm 40 years old. I'm from Singapore. I have sleep apnea and I've been having it for about a year. Being diagnosed with something chronic like that, it, it takes a hit on the ego, you know? It's embarrassing. You know, when you go to bed with your partner, you want to look nice, you want to look sexy and wearing a nasal mask. It's, it's not a good look. So, okay, let's level set for a second. Sleep apnea. For those who don't know, it's a common disorder that causes your breathing to get very shallow or even stop while you're asleep. These pauses in breathing can last anywhere from a few seconds at a time to even a few minutes. And they can happen up to or even more than 30 times an hour. As you can probably imagine, sleep apnea can be really bad for your health. It's a serious condition, and if you have it, you should definitely work with a healthcare provider to treat it. And luckily, it is treatable. A common way to treat sleep apnea, as June mentioned, is by using a continuous positive airway pressure device, or a CPAP, while you sleep. That's a machine with a mask-like thing that you wear on your face, and it gently pumps air into your nose to help regulate your breathing. Okay. Back to June's question about the shame that she's experiencing. Sometimes I will wait for him to go to sleep first before I go to sleep because I have to put the nasal mask on. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way and then I'll make him look away uh, or I'll face the other end of the room so that he doesn't see me sleeping with the mask. So little, little things like that. And having to rely on a machine, uh, possibly for the rest of my life, it feels like it's also burdensome on him. You know, when you get married, it's in sickness and in health. So, mm, okay, this is what you're going to be dealing with for the rest of your life. When the producers and I were discussing June's situation, we realized pretty quickly that this isn't really a question about sleep apnea at all. It's actually a question about relationships and chronic illness and navigating lifelong illness in a world that's often pretty hostile toward chronic illness and other forms of disability. She's asking, how do I come to terms with that? And how can I take care of myself without that shame? You know, pretty heavy stuff. So the first person who I wanted to talk to was someone who could help June realize that she's definitely not alone in this experience, in this discomfort or this embarrassment of navigating chronic illness in a relationship. Someone who has personally had to grapple with questions like, will it be like this for the rest of my life? June, you're going to feel this way until you personally decide to feel differently about your CPAP machine. That's Morgan Green. Morgan writes about her experiences with myasthenia gravis, or MG. MG is a rare autoimmune disease that she says is like a cousin to MS. It affects muscles responsible for basic functioning, like chewing, swallowing, talking, breathing, and walking. 
Morgan helps women with chronic illnesses live lives full of love, happiness, and joy. That's her thing. Your flexibility. Yes, I am in a closet. Um, where Where are you calling from? I'm actually in my office, <laughs> but um, in uh, Bowie, Maryland. For the past four years, Morgan's been writing a blog called Is, Was, Will Be. She started it when she was first diagnosed with MG because she found that there wasn't a lot out there that talked about her particular illness or the experiences of women of color with chronic illnesses. Its tagline is, live your illest life. Because even though we have an illness, it can still be dope. It can still be full of love and happiness and joy. And I realized it's a transformation that we all have to kind of go through from that time that you're diagnosed to the point that you're ready to just take life on with this uninvited guest. (laughs) I told Morgan all about June's question and asked her what she'd say to June if she could talk to her right now. So to June, I would say I can totally relate to just having a diagnosis. It's definitely a blow to like the ego And I'm not sure how long, um, you know, you and your partner have been together, but girl, if he was going to run, he would have left the first time he saw that um, machine. So I would definitely encourage you to talk to him, how he allow him to tell you exactly how he's feeling and be open to receiving it. But with that said, something else Morgan stressed was that even if June's partner is totally supportive and encouraging, she should remember that external validation often isn't enough. That dealing with your feelings and your discomfort sometimes requires working on yourself too. And so a lot of times if I'm feeling embarrassed about my illness symptoms or things that are just beyond my control, one of the things that I find is helpful is to speak to myself as I would another person that I love. So if your partner was the one with the CPAP, would you look at him funny or judge him because he had to use the machine? Or would you show him more compassion? Morgan used this strategy when she was coping with her own chronic illness. It hasn't always been easy. When she was first diagnosed, she was young, just 27 years old. She says she was just starting her life. She had a job. She was dating. She just bought a house for herself. And she was looking forward to her future. And now I have this disease that is basically taking control and threatening to strip me of my independence, which I had worked so hard to achieve. At its most intense... Doing seemingly simple things like getting out of bed, brushing her teeth, or doing her hair took a really long time. But it wasn't just that. Not knowing what her strength would look like at any given moment could be really scary. I remember one time I was actually driving and I was trying to press the brake and I didn't think I had enough strength to press the brake. I actually ended up driving into the shoulder area to kind of slow myself because I was afraid that I was going to crash into the car in front of me. So with just a lot of unknowns of one minute, I will feel completely fine. And then the next, my muscle just goes weak and I'm unable to do some of the most simple things. And getting used to this all took time. Those first months after her diagnosis were really tough. I lived in Denialville. I was the mayor, the president. (laughs) I reigned supreme over the land because I was so determined, oh, this isn't going to stop me. And as a result, I suffered so badly. Like I was in the hospital almost every two weeks because I wasn't listening to my body and I wasn't trying to adjust. 
So then once I reconciled that, okay, this is this is real, this is here to stay, I went the opposite. I became a little hermit crab and I just, I went to work and I came home. I didn't go anywhere and I didn't allow people to see me or do anything because I was just like, this is just what it is. I'm not going to be able to do anything with this illness because it won't let me be great. Um, I gave all my power to the illness instead of trying to figure out how to work with it. Morgan stayed in that mindset for a year. And it wasn't until she started talking about her MG on the internet that she started to work her way out of it. Through the growing friendships and support she got from other people with chronic illness. People who call themselves spoonies. The term comes from The Spoon Theory, a personal essay written by a woman named Christine Miserendino. A spoon is kind of like a metaphor to explain to people um, energy levels and effort of someone with a chronic illness. You wake up each day and you might have four spoons, but going to the bathroom might be two spoons and then going downstairs to the kitchen might be your other two spoons. That's it. That's all my energy for the day. I can't do the things that I used to do that would be maybe 10 or 20 spoons. And so it's about using your spoons the right way, (laughs) in the most efficient way, and also helping others understand that it's not that I don't want to do things with you. I physically don't have the energy. I don't have it, the reserve within me to do these things. Spoon theory helped Morgan better understand what was happening with her. And it gave her a tool to communicate that to her friends and family. Which brings us back to June's question. June has a different situation, of course. She uses a CPAP machine. But there's also a clear parallel here. For Morgan, taking care of her health means conserving her energy as necessary, like by sometimes canceling plans. And for June, taking care of her health means wearing that CPAP machine. That's just life with a chronic illness. You have to listen to yourself and adjust. And so do the people around you. You, uh, you've written, I read a blog post that you wrote about how to date when you have a chronic illness, um, which seemed to me like it came very much from personal experience. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me about your early experiences dating with a chronic illness and, and how you approached it at the beginning? So at the very beginning, I was dating a guy. I recall, so one of the things with MG is that you have a droopy lid and double vision, to cover up the droopy lid or even to help with the double vision. And one of the things that helps is an eye patch. And I'll never forget the day that he called me Pirate Steve. And I literally felt so small and just humiliated and embarrassed. And just like, I cannot believe that this is happening to me. Like, who's ever going to want to be with a pirate? Like, name a sexy pirate. (laughs) After that experience, Morgan did a 180. In her next relationship, she decided not to share anything at all about her illness. And that didn't work out either. She often was too tired to follow through on date plans, so she ghosted a lot, and eventually the guy just stopped calling. Morgan knew she needed to focus on herself for a while, and it just, none of it was feeling worth it. But then she met somebody new and found her happy medium. I have, I guess, found a balance between emotionally leaning on him while reserving some things for myself or not feeling like I have to justify or explain 
my illness, if that makes sense. Hmm. Did you feel embarrassed about aspects of your illness early on in your current relationship? Or was it mostly kind of uh, like a self-protection mechanism? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I felt embarrassed. Um, Again, from the traumatic experience of being called a pirate previously, but not just that, just some of the, you know, um, undesirable aspects of MG. So like, I'll randomly fall. That's embarrassing. No one wants to randomly fall in front of a guy that they're trying to be cool in front of, or, you know, the droopy lid and like, you know how partners are kind of sometimes just gazing at you admiringly. <laughs> I'm self-conscious. I'm like, oh my gosh, is my eye drooping? Is it twitching? Like, why is he staring at me? And it made me so uncomfortable to be looked at. Like, please don't look at me. And he's just like, why? You're beautiful. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I look like a monster. I legitimately felt like a monster. And I just didn't feel comfortable in my own skin. It took a while before Morgan was more comfortable with her partner's attention and affection. And it also took some time to feel comfortable asking for her partner's help when she needed it. Simply asking for help made her feel really vulnerable. Similar to June, who says that her CPAP machine in some ways makes her feel like a burden, Morgan says that having needs related to her chronic illness also made her feel needy. And that was something that she wasn't at all comfortable with especially right after she was diagnosed. I can recall moments where I'm like bald on the um, on the bathroom floor, like writhing in pain, refusing to call anybody because it's the middle of the night and I don't want to wake anyone up. And I don't want to inconvenience anybody because of my issue. But now Morgan has a partner who is informed about her illness and cares about her. That means that she's had to confront those feelings head on and recognize when they're counterproductive or even harmful. I want to say it was one of the last times I went to the hospital before I had my surgery. Um, he, my partner, he actually yelled at me for not calling him and asking for help. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was like, if you weren't already in feeling so bad, I would yell at you more. because he was just very frustrated that instead of calling on him and asking for help, that I would just sit there and punish myself. That's basically what I was doing. I was punishing myself on top of having the illness because I felt like I didn't deserve help. I deserved to be in pain versus inconveniencing anyone else. And I had to ask myself, like, am I really asking for anything like, astronomical? Am I being needy? Am I being clingy? Am I being a burden? Or am I just accepting that I can't do everything the way that I used to be able to do everything? And will I allow people the opportunity to step up? You know, um, they say closed mouths don't get fed. I think that we don't ask for help, but we need it. Morgan's epiphany is a good reminder that we have this idea that we have to be self-sufficient and that it's somehow shameful to need help or support. But that's not only ridiculous and harmful, it's also sadly reflective of this cultural stigma or bias against illness and disability. When 
it's just a part of life for so, so, so many people. And if it's not a part of your life right now, it very likely will be at some point. And in order to feel more comfortable with chronic illness in a relationship, yes, it's super important. It's essential to find a loving and supportive partner. Yes, absolutely. But it also requires working through some of your own hangups, which exists through no fault of your own other than simply living as a human being in this world. I think one of the things that the illness has brought to light for me was that there was a lack of self-esteem and a lack of self-love. Every day I was criticizing myself for the illness and for my symptoms and for, you know, losing control. But it definitely just like opened my eyes like, girl, like, do you even like yourself? Um, So I started doing like a lot of self-reflective work, journaling and meditating and focusing a lot on how I thought about myself, how I spoke to myself, what I thought about myself and just speaking life into myself and letting myself know that I'm worthy of help and freeing myself from the thought of being a burden and mentally preparing myself to still be great and to not, I guess for lack of better words, burden myself with trying to assume how everyone feels about me and the illness versus empowering myself about what matters really is how I feel about me, how I feel about the illness. Mm, I love that. Well, thank you again. I'm gonna I'm gonna hop off and appreciate really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, please hop out the closet. <laughs> <laughs> so Morgan almost makes this feel easy, kind of, in talking about how far she's come with her own self-acceptance. But what does this look like in practice? After a quick break, we're going to talk to somebody who helps couples have the kinds of conversations that Morgan has gotten good at over the years. Welcome back to Checking In. So we talked to Morgan to get a sense of what it's like to confront internalized shame about aspects of chronic illness. But we also think it's really important for our caller, June, to work on communication with her partner. I I think that um, what people have to realize is that we are organisms that change over time, emotionally, physically, intellectually. And part of being a really a vital couple is learning how to grow with each other. Sari Cooper is a sex therapist who founded the Center for Love and Sex in New York, While a lot of the couples she sees come in for sex-related disorders and and issues, she also has decades of experience with couples who just need help communicating about a whole bunch of other things, including struggles around chronic illness. I wanted to find out from Sari, what are some concrete strategies for managing shame and embarrassment over a health condition in a relationship? The first step, she says, is helping her patients learn to be nicer to themselves and to recognize when they're spiraling. So I use a lot of mindfulness um, techniques because I want people to actually access what the feeling is in their body, first of all. So I want them to become embodied. Um, And so I'll ask them when they're talking about something that causes them pain and suffering, what is it that's going on in your body right now? Can you describe it to me? Is it in your chest? Is it in your hips? Is it a clenching? Is it a fluttering? What does it feel like? And then once they sort of find that, 
I'll guide them to do some breathing around focusing on the breath and focusing on that place and filling it with breath to release some of that tightness or tension. And then I'll ask them or I'll guide them and I'll say, you know, you're going to have these thoughts that are going to keep following, you know, coming through your your mind, right? Like cars on a train. And the practice of breathing and keeping your focus on your embodied self uh, requires you to let go of the thought as it passes by. And they're going to continually pass by. But the exercise is really about gaining more um, ability to focus on the breath and less about going what I call down what I call the rabbit hole of those thoughts, right? Sari says that she also asks people to consider where their bad thoughts and feelings are actually coming from. Is it really the situation at hand or the facts on the ground? The fact is that she has to wear the sleep mask every night. That is a fact, or a fact can be that I deal with migraines, right? We get a lot of clients who have migraines um, or fibromyalgia pain, right? Um, That's a fact. Or is it all the stories, narratives, recriminations, and critical self-talk that bubble up around the fact? Sometimes people get so um, lost in that kind of thinking that um, it really brings them so low that their partner can't even, they won't allow their partner to reach them. And I see it a lot with, you know, body image issues. And they're not even allowing themselves to feel sensual or excited. It's like they're punishing themselves. And then I think I would also probably, if she came in by herself, I would ask her about where some of the beliefs um, behind the statements come from, right? Did she learn as a child, as a young girl, that she was supposed to um, be the caretaker, the strong one, never get sick, never um, be a burden to others? Where did that come from? You know, where did she learn that? Separating the facts from all the cultural and emotional stuff that gets lobbed on top can really help you see yourself and your illness clearly. It can help you figure out how you actually feel about it. So that's the work Sari does on the individual level. But when she's sitting in her office with a couple, she says that a lot of the work she does revolves around teaching people who love each other how to communicate more clearly and effectively with one another. She teaches people how to talk so the other person will listen, and vice versa. You know, a lot of the... things that we work on in therapy is how to say something in a way that your partner can digest, can hear. Has to do with tone, has to do with intention. So then when I would get them together, I might say to the partner, um, you know, if if he is not bothered by this at all, right? Um, What can you do, um, you know, to reassure her? And then ask her, what, what kind of comfort do you need in that moment when you become more anxious or, you know, self-conscious? Do you need verbal affirmation? Um, would there be, you know, kind of a touch that might make you feel more like he's really in, in it with you? He's there with you? Uh, what, what is it that you would need to kind of get back into the present? 
The goal is to learn to communicate in a way so that your partner will hear your true intent behind whatever it is you're saying. Because so often we come to a conversation with our own biases or feelings or perspectives that can color how we interpret what the other person is saying. And that can really get in the way of understanding. Right. And so I always teach couples, you know, partners that, you know, we all have these kind of um, sound diffusers <laughs> that we we hear things through. And a lot of the way we hear things has to do with our own upbringings and our own wounds and everything. Um, and part of, by the way, mindfulness practice is great because you, it, it helps you uh, give yourself a little pause before you react to things. <laughs> um so uh, a great sort of script um, that people use, which is really helpful, is to say, so what I hear you say is, and telling someone, it does, just because you're reflecting back on what you heard them say, you're not agreeing with them. It's not a debate. It's just making sure they feel gotten, that they feel witnessed, they feel heard. And then you can proceed from there. Um, and then saying, is that right? Did I hear you correctly? Because a lot of times we, we don't hear them correctly. We're hearing them through our own diffusers or, you know, um, lenses. How can somebody prepare to be more open with their partner about their insecurities or their needs? So I think what I would say to people is um, develop your own um, ability to keep calm and keep away the negative thoughts. Um, open up conversations with kind of a foundation of compassionate listening and reflection um, and learning how to um, experiment. Um, knowing that, you know, you may get it wrong, it may not work, you know, but with fun and playful creativity because, create, you know, creativity is really the sustenance of, of, of growth. Well, Sari, it was so good to talk to you. Thank you again. Really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. June, I hope this was helpful. And more than anything, I hope you feel reassured that you're not alone in your experience. Thank you so much for checking in. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Self on Instagram at Self Magazine and follow me, I'm at Carolyn Kilstra. On our audio team, supervising producer is Odelia Rubin, lead producer is Haley Fager, executive producer is Shara Morris, producer is Phoebe Unterman, associate producers are Andrea Patanzos and Kate Mishkin, and sound engineer is Scott Somerville. On the self team, the editorial lead is Sarah Yalowitz, special projects director is Amy Isinger, researchers are Amy Marturana Winderall and Colleen DeBelfon, and production manager is Nico Steele. The theme music is by Biscuit and Butta, courtesy of Blaze Unlimited LLC. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum Media. Thanks for listening. See you next week.